You're listening to The Heart of It Podcast. My name is Sam Smeltzer, and I'm an HR intuitive and healer. In this podcast, we'll chat about what the industry of human resources can make possible for people and our organizations. In each episode, we'll have raw conversation around inner development and organizational culture change to create a working world where both people and organizations thrive. Thank you for listening. Now let's get this episode started. Thank you so much for tuning in today for this episode of the Heart of It podcast. We are doing our annual series on things that are worthy to share, and I'm so excited to share this guest with you that I have here today. This episode is called I'm Not an Expert, and we're going to be talking about ally work and being an ally, something that I am passionate about, something that I am amidst very heavily unlearning, but wanting to have these conversations. Um, And Doug and I actually met through a mutual friend. Um, She recommended, Dr. Monet recommended that I reach out to Doug Hober to start these conversations and in hopes that we can have a dialogue today that will be very inspirational and helpful to anyone that's listening. So before we get into our conversation, Doug, do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it and excited to be here today and have this conversation about allyship. Uh, my background, um, I've got, you know, I'm degreed in physics and computer science, uh, worked in a number of different industries. And as far as allyship and being an ally, um, I guess my first uh exposure to race was when I was 10 years old. I lived in Levittown, Pennsylvania. And this was the Daisy Myers situation where she was trying to move in the first black family, moving into an all white secluded um, neighborhood. And and you see all these signs for the trucks running around with go back to where you belong and, and all those nasty signs. And at that age, I saw it, but didn't understand it. And my dad gave me a little bit of information about it. But it wasn't until I actually moved to York and started going to a church here. And it so happened that Daisy was going to the same church. <laughs> and so we actually met and started talking. And and that got me into the thinking about, you know, the, the race issues and the things that I needed to learn. And I started taking courses at that point. And since then, I've been taking a variety of number of courses and workshops and learning and educating myself and, and reading. That was back in late 90s when I met Daisy. So, I love how you pinpoint the start of your work to a relationship. Like you have early memories of something, but it all really started to begin when you created a bond and you connected right. with another individual, which I think is a big commonality for people that I talk to in this work is when we reach out and we talk to somebody who's different than us and start to understand and learn and see things from another perspective that we could never really truly understand because of physical differences and and what that means. Right. So, So, So that's basically my, you know, beginning background and experience in this thing. So awesome. Thank you. So um, 
you uh, kind of briefly talked about when you started your your allyship work. Can you, you said that you started like unlearning. Can you just talk about early on, what did that journey actually look like? So what were some of the things that you started to gravitate towards and how has that kind of evolved uh, for you as you've continued over the years? Well, I, the first thing I started, I, the first class I took was, uh, it was called uh, dream, Build the World You Dream About uh, that our church was offering, but say actually a UCC course um, that's offered to a number of different areas. And, and it basically talks about white privilege and you go through starting to learn about that. And, and I like a lot of people went into that saying, you know, I'm not racist, you know, and I treat people equally and so forth. And I had little clue about what white privilege was about. And, and so they take you through a variety of settings and you go through a number of tests. And at the end of these tests and discussions, it's like, uh, you know, like sticker shock and you're going to buy a car or a house, you know, it's like the sticker shock here was like, really? <laughs> me? <laughs> no, not even, you know, and, and that's the way it kind of hit me. And, and so you had to kind of step away then and come to uh, a realization of that and deal with that. And you either accept it. And, and start to understand it, or you can take the other side and say, no, I, I don't believe this and walk away from it. And, and there are people that do both. Okay. So it's, uh, I, I tried to accept it, studied it and started learning more about it. And through the course of this, which was a two year course, uh, you really come to grips with white privilege. And um, it, it's, it was just a total eye opener for me. And so, but then even though you have the eye opener and you come to terms and accept it, now the next question is, well, what do you do now? You know, and, and you start to go through um, the issue of, of shock and guilt comes in. You say, oh my God, you know, and what do I do? And how do I undo this? And what do I have to do as an individual in dealing with this thing. And, and so that's a learning process you start dealing with over time again, and, you know, through reading and taking courses and so forth. And, and that's what that's kind of been for me. So. Uh, and uh, I love you sharing that transition. Cause I think that's so key. And I think there's so many people that are getting to that point now where their eyes are being opened. Um, and then you're thinking now what, um, and you're right, you can go one or two ways, you accept it, and you want to either just shut it off, because it's right. just so overwhelming, when right. you start to open up your eyes, or you become passionate about it and say, I'm not going to accept this, and this has to change. And then that's overwhelming, because you're like, where do I start with that? <laughs> right. um, and you do go through like guilt and shock. And um, just personally, I mean, we know that times right now have really called racial justice issues to the forefront and more than ever, um, we're seeing people opening their eyes. Um, and that even pushed me in my, uh, in my journey. And, and I started reading things that I haven't typically read. And my husband's had to deal with the outpouring of me feeling this new wave of guilt and shock and shame as I've had to absorb that. And that's absolutely normal and part of the process of unlearning. Right. You know, when we, um, Doug and I first met to, to discuss planning and what this episode could even entail, uh, one of the first things that he said to me was, well, you know, I'm not an expert on this topic. Um, and that really stuck with me, even though it wasn't 
and it just sat with me, even though that wasn't the intent of what he was saying. But like, I do think that there's this expectation that many of us have that when you start down this journey, it's to become this expert before I can open my mouth and be an activist towards change. And um, so Doug, can you just share with us your thoughts on that when someone is feeling like they're on this journey of this expert and, and, and what do you think about that? How does that resonate with you? Well, it's, you know, because when you first start reading and you start educating yourself, you know, you, you learn all of this information about racism and the history of black culture in this country and, and so forth. And you start saying, what can I do and what do I do? And at the same time, it's like, you know, I, I've lived in a white neighborhood, in a white environment all my life with, you know, I'm going to say mediocre or incidental acquaintances with people of color, but never really interacted. And, and so your concern and the fear is, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to do the wrong thing? And the answer to that is absolutely, you will. <laughs> However, the thing to remember is that when you do do that, you know, if you're talking to someone who knows you and you're not a perfect stranger, but someone who knows you even as a, a mild acquaintance, they generally will in some way infer that, hey, you know, you're being a little racist or that was like a, what they call microaggression. You have to be ready to respond in with an apology to say, oh, I'm sorry. And you don't talk about the intention. You apologize from the standpoint of the impact. You know, and, and to give you an example of that is think of it as people of color are wearing sandals and you're wearing heavy boots and you step on their toes and, and they go, ouch. And you apologize. You apologize and ask, how are they doing? You know, I, are you okay? How badly did I injure you? And you talk about it from that standpoint as opposed to the point of, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Because now you made it about yourself as opposed to about them. And your apology should be to them and about what they are feeling and the impact that you're stepping on the toes had. So, and that's a whole ch mindset change in how you approach these things. And that's the education process and the learning process you go through. And you're never going to learn all of the right things to say and everything there is to know, but you keep educating yourself. And as you start doing some of these things and talking with people of color, you'll start developing relationships, you know, get more comfortable with it and you'll make fewer mistakes <laughs> and, and they'll understand that, you know, so. Well, and I think those are huge things that you just said, like you need to recognize that you, you will fail, like you're not right. going to be perfect at right. this. Exactly. No matter how many years you're going to fail and you should just expect that. But I also loved this difference in this shift in perspective from intention to impact. Because um, as you were saying that, that like just beautifully put into context a lot of comments that I've seen on social media as I watch, because I'm, I'm definitely a watcher on social media. I don't really engage. That's just, I'm an introvert. I don't, but I like to people watch and see okay. how people go back and forth. Um, and I'm also on a couple of... Um, DEI work groups and task groups as a HR professional um, and watching how staff are interacting and talking. And no one's actually been able to articulate that piece when you're seeing the difference because one side wants to come through and share that my intentions are not malicious. 
And the other side is saying, you need to understand the impact regardless of what your intention was. Correct. And, um, and I think that's really key because like no one's been able, I haven't heard that yet. So that when you said that, my life, I was like, wow, what a light bulb moment um, to shift that. Cause that's all that's what's, you know, we all want to be heard. Um, but they're talking about two different lenses and I come from a place where I like to assume positive intent of all people. And if that's a ground rule, then let's just talk about how we're making people feel as a reaction to what we're putting out there. Yeah, absolutely. Now I have to admit that that particular example, I have to give credit to Dr. Manet because I got that from her about a week ago in a workshop that I did with her. So it's, uh, so, but you know, the, the concept is there and there's a lot of other examples that one can use on that. So, but that yeah. I thought was kind of, as a very clear, uh, easy to understand example on that kind of concept. So, yeah, it's, it would be a nice challenge to try to do the opposite, like go stomp on somebody and then be like, you don't understand. Like I was just trying to look really cute today and these are my boots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And look at the reaction you're going to get, you know, and <laughs> that's sorry. That's like, no, get out of my life here. Will you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I know I uh, um, recently on the podcast, we've been doing like a, we did our first ever book club summer reading series. And one of the books we've read is this book called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Um, and this book uh, had a chapter just tucked in there um, about her ally work. It kind of caught me off guard because it was written a year ago. She had no idea about the times that are happening and somehow she just kind of hit it right spot on. <laughs> but she used this terminology that really sank with me um, she called it racial sobriety. She talked about this whole awakening and her eyes opening. Um, and she is a recovering addict. So it's normal that she would go towards this terminology, but it really kind of, it hit, it hit a place to think of this idea of when your eyes open, you are becoming racially sober. And every single day that you take, you know, eliminating the microaggressions, eliminating the failed, uh, ways that we, impact people and are offending people uh, because we just don't even know until you're starting to look at and examine every action that we take or the people around us and the conversations that are happening. Um, And then at the same time, it's so overwhelming, you know, like I kind of want to be like, well, I'm, I'm 12 days racially sober and I'm still working on myself. Right. So if someone is just days or weeks like into this, um, because I, it breaks my heart, but I've seen it a lot where some people are just opening up for the first time. Um, what what do you want to share with them as someone who has been an ally for so long? Um, and they're kind of, and, it, and especially during COVID and quarantine, like we used to have this sense of community that you could turn to and maybe you don't have access to um, friends that you might have turned to in this time because you randomly run into them at church or you run into them at a coffee shop or whatever those networks are and you feel alone and isolated and you're experiencing this guilt and this shame what do you want to say to them well uh there's a lot you can say (laughs) and and overwhelm and i guess a couple of things is one you know the desire to, you know, I woke up and now I want to be an ally, a friend, a supporter to people of color. And, and I guess the first thing that, that you need to understand about allyship is that you can never self-define yourself as an ally. You know, I mean, it's, it's like 
I can't define myself as your best friend because we just know each other. You're the only one that can make that decision and say that I am. And the same thing with an allyship is that a person of color is the only one that can call you an ally based on your language, behavior, support, and other actions. So just wanted to kind of clear that up that you don't define yourself and say, I'm an ally. No, I appreciate that. That's yeah, a really so, great. Yeah. Dr. Monet shared that with me, and that was an excellent Yeah, so that's good. Point. Yes, I just wanted to get that out on the podcast here. So that, and not every person of color would want to have an ally too. So, and you should understand that. But if you're just waking up, I mean, obviously it's, it's educate yourself is the one thing. Second thing is try to develop a relationship with a, a person of color. You know, I'm sure that, you know, most people have seen or have an acquaintance that they, they meet and through, you know, Zoom or phone calls or social media, try to start to develop a relationship to understand better and learn to listen. Do not try to be the white savior. Okay. So you listen and, and listen to what they have to say and be empathetic if they share stories about their life or oppression that they've experienced uh, and so forth. And you can't solve it for them, but you can be empathetic. You'll never walk in their shoes. You will never experience what they are experiencing in life. And all you can do is just listen and be there for them and ask them at some point, what can they do to help them or do for them or do and listen to what they have to say. But, you know, this, you know, it's, it's a white issue, racism. And it's really our responsibility once you wake up to continuously learn and educate yourself and learn about microaggressions, you know, and, and how do you solve or how do you use your white privilege to minimize or eliminate institutional racism? And since this is an HR network, I will give you an example of something where it, it's a muted subtle racial situation that I think a lot of people don't understand occurs. And that is dealing with resumes. I've had numerous, not numerous, but several people of color that I've listened to and heard. And they say, you know, I have a, a black name, you know, Shawan Jamal or something like that. And I put all these resumes out and I don't hear anything. And they change their name to a white sounding name. And all of a sudden they're getting all these callbacks. So, you know, for HR to be paying attention to resumes with those type of names coming from people and watching to see how they are treated by the hiring managers gives you a sense of racial, subtle racial institutionalism in your company. And how do you then solve that? And that's where you have to kind of figure out. So, you know. I love that you brought that example up because um, I've heard it referred to a couple times already uh, in the last couple of months. And people, HR professionals have said, yeah, well, you know, we've heard this story time and time again. I'm like, but it keeps coming up because it's still happening. Like they can right. do the same experiment tomorrow <laughs> and it still happens. Exactly. Um, and it's hard for me to understand because even in an HR brain, say if we take racism out of it, we are trained to learn for things to limit risk and liability to our organizations. Mm -hmm. So if I knew 
that that's a population that's discriminated against. Anytime a name that would come across like that, I would probably be like, oh, well, we should take extra care with this. Just that's one of those things that you just from a from a filtering. So if you just remove any moral ethnical ground from it, from a filter, you could you could do that. So, but I think that's that's a great point to it. The one thing that I do um, want to just touch on a little bit, uh, and since you kind of turned us into the HR realm a little bit. Um, I mentioned that I've been on these DEI work groups and task force that are made up of staff members. And I've, I've realized that um, a lot of the staff members are people who are just wakening up or who are just racially sober and they want to get involved and they want to be part of the change. And they are amidst um, unlearning um, and they want to listen and they want to hear the stories. Um, and there's also the other side of people of color who are coming because they want to see change happen, but they're also very tired right now that there's right. um, this massive unlearning that's happening is, is causing that to happen as well. Um, what would you say to someone who is on one of these task groups as part of their start down this journey? Um, how can they best be positioned um, and I know everyone says, listen, but if I'm sitting there on these work groups, because a lot of them are like two hours mm-hmm. um, right. and, and, and what, how can we make the most? So we start moving towards change and start moving towards helping these institutions and organizations that are open to it right now. Well, if you're having a task force and you're listening to people of color talk about what they're experiencing in your company or in your business, uh, ask them saying, okay, I hear you. I hear what you're saying and what you're experiencing. Let's talk about solutions. Let's talk about jointly what we can do to kind of solve some of these things. And, and I realize in an HR situation, I've been a hiring manager uh, for many years. And, and I know some of the restrictions you get into in terms of changing policies and practices. But I think having that discussion as a group and letting them help be part of the solution, at least in directing and recommending solutions. But then you have to take action on those because if you listen to the actions that they're recommending and nothing occurs, then it's like, well, what the heck was this for? You know, and and you're suddenly going to lose them very quickly. Um, so if you start taking micro steps and mini steps along the way and changing things little by little, keeping them aware of what you're changing, that they can see the changes, then you're going to gain their respect and support, you know, and then you can help bridge that, you know, throughout the company and, and mitigate any differences or separations you have because of race, you know, any divisions going on and, really work with your hiring managers because they're the ones that are going to do a lot as well as your working managers and super frontline supervisors can have a big impact on a lot of this stuff. They really can as well as your, your top level management and officers in terms of corporate policies and opening them up for, okay, we've been rigid and we have this, but we need to think differently and open up for more diversity and they may not have solutions, but you'd have to bring, come from the bottom up and push them and say, we have solutions. <laughs> Listen to us and help us implement these things and open up your policy so they're not necessarily as strict so that we can make changes and work through this and put them in place. So 
to me, that's what I would be, you know, advocating as a, a first step in doing this. So. Well, I think that's really powerful. And I love how you say these words very simplistically, but think differently. And I think that is behind all of this. We have to be willing to think differently because we are so ingrained in this system and how we've approached it. it I think I said this to somebody the other day and they looked at me kind of funny because I was like, I really think the solutions are just not going to make logical sense to many of us right? because it's going to be so out of the norm, but that's where we're going to see real change. Um, and the other thing that as you were saying that, that I think is just something that I, I feel compelled to just say is that this conversation did not just start now. It's been around, like you said, when you were 10 that you had, exactly. and he was not 10 yesterday. So I won't give away yeah. your age, but <laughs> Doug was not 10 yesterday. And, um, and so people of color have been having this dialogue. It's come up to the forefront, then it disappears. And so when we put these task groups and, and, and uh, work groups together, they've been around before and they've created plans. And just like what you said, action is so important. They've created the solutions and nothing's ever changed. Um, and one of the things that I've loved about this time around is that some organizations are actually being called out on those plans from 10 years ago, five years ago, that they have not taken action on because they've been putting statements out. Um, and uh, so I think that's really important is to, we're still at the stage where we want to be hesitant to move towards solutions because mm -hmm. we think we're going to jump the gun. But these have been working solutions that have been in place for years. People have been, people of color have been kind of like doing their research and now it's like, you're willing to listen. So let's listen right. and think about things differently. So I think that's, you, did, you said that really nicely. Um, and I love, I mean, I love these conversations because obviously I'm, I'm learning mm -hmm. as well and, and, yeah. and hearing I, your perspective on things, it, it, it helps. Yeah. Conversations. I mean, that's the heart of change. Um, you know, it's a, I, I spent a lot of time over in China when I was working uh, and I'd be over there for three to four, three or six weeks every quarter doing work. And so you met a totally different culture. And once you start talking to the people, you start learning an awful lot. You know, you really do. And, but you got to take that step and start that conversation. And it turns into something wonderful. I mean, just to give you a quick example of that is I met some young boys one night as I was getting a beer in one place in a, near a park. They invited me to sit with them they gave their five or 10 sentences in English and I gave my five or 10 sentences in Chinese and the next four hours were the best time of my life over there, you know? And, and so it became, you know, we found a way to talk and converse and communicate and, and it's great when that happens. And you do the same thing here with, you know, a group that you're trying to ally with, whether it's people of color or a different, um, uh, ethnic background or something of that nature. It's that communication, discussion, developing a relationship. And that's the best thing you can do in all of this. And the more that we do as a country, the sooner we'll be able to put a lot of this behind us because you get to know somebody. Yeah. Well, and I love how you, you kind of just put the vision out there. You know, we talk about this work and we talk about how it's heavy what's on the other side it's something really wonderful something really beautiful and having relationships that we're 
missing out on. We've talked for, oh my gosh, decades and decades about the benefits of diversity. We have not even begun to truly, fully immerse ourselves in experiencing those benefits because the relationships are not there. Mm -hmm. So no, thank you. You provided that story just gave a nice little glimpse there. Good. Good. Well, Doug, um, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to share a little bit about your experiences and your perspective on this much needed dialogue and topic. Is there any last words or thoughts or anything you feel compelled to share? Educate yourself and, and be ready to educate others, you know, and the education of others is not sit down and I'm going to teach you. <laughs> it's in the conversations. And when you hear microaggressions come up that are not intentional, be ready to not call somebody out, but kind of correct them. You know, and, and the one example that you'll see on the Internet, if you research a lot of this is, you know, gee, you were so articulate when you spoke. The impact or intention being that's not said is for a person of color. And then you can call somebody and say, you know, it might be better if you spoke more about the content rather than the articulation of words. And it'd be less harmful or degenerating to somebody. So doing those kind of little things within your family, your friends and so forth, you're educating them, but you're not, it's not a conflicting or a conflict situation that you're creating. So those kind of things really do a lot and they won't get it at first, but repeatedly after a while, and then you can have a conversation about it and talk about why, you know, and where they're coming from. So and they may get woke and decide to start educating themselves you know but if not that's their decision so yeah all we can do is send our ripples out and that's exactly and hope that we start creating some waves so there's only one person you can change in this world and that's yourself yeah you know and you can lead by example and influence but that's all you can do yeah well, thank you so much, Doug. You had so many awesome little nuggets of wisdom. I can't see how anyone to not get something from this conversation. Um, but yeah, it's been a true, true pleasure. And thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was very good. <laughs>